Walk in the Mysterious Universe, Season 23, Episode 19. Coming up on the show, we've got confessions from the Black Ops Doctor, Satellite Dowsing. And Jim Bruton joins us to discuss his incredible near-death experience from his new book, The In-Between. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. You know, we've covered a lot of near-death experience stories over the years, Ben, but I'm so pleased that we're going to be talking to Jim because his story is unlike anything I've ever heard before. Isn't it completely out of left field, even for a near-death experience? Yeah. And his life is just so fascinating. I mean, the guy is just so interesting to talk to. He, He was an African wilderness guide for years. He's an Emmy Award-winning wildlife film director. He's an aviator. He's an adventurer. He's the inventor of the satellite video phone. He was an NBC News uh, Middle East war correspondent. He's a husband. He's a father. But his passion, as you'll hear in a moment, was eventually building and flying replica World War One aircraft. Yes. And it was in one of these replica aircraft that he had a horrific crash, basically left him for dead. And for an entire week... He went somewhere else. Mm-hmm. He and went somewhere else is what this interview is going to be all about. Yeah, he went to the in-between. So before we speak to Jim, though, we have a, a huge amount of stuff coming up in our Plus extension on this episode as well. What have you been working on? Well, I'm so excited because I was holding on to the work I've been doing on phantom black dogs and their connections with electrical phenomena, ball lightning, and people that seem to have pyrokinetic abilities, this strange kind of unlikely marriage that you have between phenomena. So that's going to be coming up in the Plus extension. But I thought... For this show, I just wanted to add a little bit to it. So I picked up a copy of Shapeshifter Territory by Ryan Patrick Burns. And at first when this book came out, I just found it in this obscure website because it was a Lulu publication. But it's now actually on Amazon, I believe. So I'll link to it in the show notes as well so you can pick it out. But if you are interested in shapeshifting phenomena, skinwalkers, wendigos, weird experiences like that, this is one of the go-to books. Okay. This has been... Unlike anything I was expecting. I mean, yes, there's plenty of great books out there on on skinwalkers and that kind of phenomena. But Ryan's experiences are certainly uh, in the upper zones of bizarre of the things that we've covered, including strange men in black that are involved in crash craft that might be black ops craft, that might be extraterrestrial re-engineered objects. All will be revealed in the Plus extension coming up at the end of the show. Okay, colour me intrigued. Well, let's go into the interview with Jim. This is Jim Bruton. The book is available now. It's The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime. We hope you enjoy the interview. Welcoming to the show, author, filmmaker, inventor, and former war correspondent, Jim Bruton. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ben. Hi, Aaron. How are you all tonight? Oh, we're great. It was so fantastic to speak to you. It was funny, we saw this book on our radar and we realized this was a story about your near-death experience. But it's uh, a little bit different. Well, yeah, when we started reading, first of all, we realized just how incredible your life was before this life-changing experience you had. And in the very opening pages of the book, we find you in Namibia, of all places, in 1993. And we soon learn that you have a bit of a history with this part of the world. So maybe take us back, Jim, to 
you know, your early years and what led you to Namibia and how you ended up living in the country as a young man. Absolutely. Yeah. When I was a child, you know, like a lot of little kids, you know, we would watch television in the evenings and might have a favorite program that uh, revolved around natural history, like wildlife filming. We had a very popular one here called Wild Kingdom. It came on um, Sunday nights. And as a little boy, I would sit there and watch uh, this, this these pair of men run around the world uh, helping animals, endangered species or wildlife parks or things like that. And I remember sitting there thinking, how do I do that for a living? Well, in college, I met a, a young woman whose father made wildlife films. And actually, they are Australian. He, his name was Des Bartlett. His wife was Jen. And uh, my wife-to-be was named Julie. So I asked her, I said, you know, filming wildlife has always been a dream of mine since childhood. Does your father ever need help? And she said, I'll ask. Well, <laughs> he came back and said, sure. So, you know, it took me a couple of months to basically sell all my stuff and pack a bag and head off to Namibia with Julie to join her parents and, you know, start learning about wildlife filming, which, as you can imagine, in Africa, it's a lot more than just filming animals. I mean, it's how to fix a Land Rover. It's how to conserve water. It's it's so it's a very holistic learning process. And of course, you know, learning how to film animals is a big exercise in patience. They don't do anything on cue. You can't hurt a wild animal. And you could be sitting there for, you know, five or six days with your eyes glued to a, a viewfinder on a camera wanting to get an ostrich chick hatching. You come back on the seventh day and, you know, something cracked it open. It's like, oh, okay. It certainly seemed that you had a, a kind of magnetic pull back to that part of the world because you explained later you eventually you know, formed a safari company to take other people out there. But it's the story gets really interesting when it's it's 1993 and you're in the middle of nowhere in Namibia and a, a Disney film crew turns up. Now, you explain there was a piece of their technology that really, um, you know, sparked your interest and really in a, a fierce way. It really kind of changed the path of your life. What was that technology and, and what path did it spur you down? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's a great point to bring up. So, yes, I was in the Skeleton Coast Park, which is has the world's tallest sand dunes. I was 300 miles from anyone. And I heard uh, the sound of these vehicles coming over the sand dunes. And I uh, looked and it was led by a ranger I knew who also lived in the park. And it was a Disney film crew. They're scouting a location for a film. And as I you know, talked to him about, you know, who are these people? <laughs> what are they doing here? Um, they pulled out several cases and one of them, they, they, from one of them, they opened up a nickelized polyester, it's like an umbrella, a satellite dish made out of this flexible fabric. And I'm really intrigued now. And I mean, the thing is, you know, they, they pulled out a telephone handset and they had this phone call going on with their studios back in Los Angeles. And here they are, you know, with a whole planet between them yeah. and Los Angeles having this insta instantaneous conversation. And I was thinking, holy cow, right now, if I were to write a letter and somehow get it to town and mail it and get an immediate response, it would take me six weeks round trip. And these people have instant communication. And first of all, the, the look of this little satellite phone on this beautiful, clean sand dune just had a really cool science fiction look to it. And I think that yeah. that really got my imagination going. And as a filmmaker, 
um, or as anyone in media, we're always looking for a new way to tell the story, you know, like the application of a new type of technology, or maybe we take a surgical lens, something that can go inside your body, and we run it up through a flower stem so that when the bee lands on it, it's as big as a house, and it really catches the viewer's attention. So when I saw this small satellite phone and, and that we're talking on, I, I started wondering, has anyone ever pushed live video over a system like this? And I asked them, and they, they said, we don't know. And I, and at that time, I said, I'm going to figure out how to do it. And I don't know what made me say that, but uh, I was. <laughs> I was the first person in the world to figure out how to do it. And Were you a technical guy, though? I mean, did you, did you noodle around with electronics as a kid? Did you have that kind of mind? Yeah, well, I had a I had a technical mind. I mean, one of my majors, uh, I, I double majored and doubled minored in school, and one of my majors was physics. And I think okay. I was just perpetually curious, to be honest. And I loved science fiction, so I think being able to see something very clearly, so the target or an end state, I could work out how to get there one way or the other. So I returned to the, yeah, I returned to the states and talked to Bell Laboratories talked to Inmarsat, and I talked to the people who actually made the satellite telephones. And they all put together, you know, they gave me free satellite time. They gave me a free, hugely expensive satellite phone. And Bell Lab said, yeah, however we can help you, just let us know. And off I went around the world, you know, testing my system from different locations. Yeah. And this part of the book, I just found so incredibly it's just an amazing career you had. You know, you you started working with Microsoft. This led you to, to NASA. You end up being contacted by the Pentagon. Yeah, Department of Defense. And ultimately to war zones in the Middle East. It's just an amazing story. Um, I, I do want to hear a little bit more about that because, uh, you know, t- tell us, for example, how, how you got involved with Microsoft. What was the project with them? Let's just say that it took a couple of years to really refine my satellite system to transmit video. We had to wait for the digital satellites to launch because until then everything was analog and there were just too many errors in the signal to sustain video. But once the digital were launched, uh, my system was ready to rock and roll. And I... Um, pulled the wraps off of it on October 31st, 1996, and went live into the Harvard Science Center from a forest in Mexico. And that got a lot of attention. My next phone call was from the king of Malaysia who wanted me to come with his team to Mount Everest and transmit. Wait a second. The king, because when you wrote that in the book, I thought the king of Malaysia was some movie project you were working on. But it was actually the king of Malaysia <laughs> called you up? It was his office. Yes, it was his <laughs> office um, working through uh, Intelsat in Washington, D.C. And I went down to Washington to, to meet with them. And it was all about being able to use my system to transmit live video back to the Malaysian television stations from the summit of Everest. And, of course, I said, sure, I can do that. Well, luckily, <laughs> I knew the master cartographer, the map maker at National Geographic for the Everest region. So we uh, we worked out some of the logistics regarding line of sight, and I had to build a couple of video transmitters the size of a pack of cigarettes that were like 20 watts of power. I mean, like unbelievable power. But we were successful, and we did do it, and that got a lot of attention. And the next thing I know, I, you know I'm getting a call from Microsoft. Um, they wanted to retrace the journey of the Magi, you know, the three wise men, and yeah. they wanted to end uh, at Christmas Eve in Bethlehem in Manger Square. So we went into Iran, and then we um, went to 
Syria and then Jordan and then Israel. And we did. And and along the way, you know, we were transmitting using my system, uh, daily journals, video clips, uh, uh, audio, you know, interviews, things like that. And that was pretty cool that, that I mean, we definitely saw some stuff that was like right out of an Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. And then it was really fun to go live on Christmas Eve from Manger Square with the, all the celebrations going on. So you're really just pioneering this really early part of the Internet. Well, it's uh, something we take for granted yeah, today, but back then it would have been revolutionary. Well, yes, because in 93, when I first you know saw my satellite phone, the World Wide Web was invented in 93 to give the internet some sense of organization. Talk about the Wild West. Uh, but the, the World Wide Web started to create graphical interfaces and started to organize information in a way that was more meaningful to more people. So it was at that moment that I realized, I'll bet I could go live with a system like this from water holes or native villages or just all kinds of crazy places that have been impossible before. And it would be very exciting for people to, you know, more virtually participate in the journey and in the fun. And we discover you, you wind back up at Mount Everest, but this time on a project with NASA that involved uh, a medical side of things. Can, can you explain that? Uh, there was a local uh, internet company near my home. I forget exactly how we met, but um, once they found out you know, about my system and what my goals were with uh, creating content uh, for the internet, they, they were one of the organizations capturing my signal from the summit and streaming it out onto the internet for people to see. And we had a live interview and that was fun. And then one of uh, the founders of the company said, you know, this might have a lot of application to this new thing called telemedicine. And I know somebody over at Yale University who's involved in it. <clears throat> Would you like to talk to him? Well, I said, sure. And yeah, don't live very far from there anyway. So we met over at Yale. We talked about what my system could do and how, how I had already integrated some interesting um, data acquisition tools to it. I'll give you an example. We, Okay, in regular television, when you see closed captions, that's using a certain part of the signal called the uh, vertical blanking interval. Okay. And you can actually use that part of the signal to present data on screen, kind of like in the science fiction movies when somebody has a heads-up display and they can see where they are and where their neighbor is and their heart rate and all that stuff. I see. So I showed how I could use the vertical blanking interval to pre uh, present that information on the television screen. And then what I could do is, you know, with the two audio channels you have, I could actually bust apart an old telecoupler. You might remember what that was that uh, – early days of the internet, it would take a telephone and transmit signals over it that were tones. I would use that to transmit uh, the data channel. I'd use the remaining audio for the audio and the video for the video. So we had all this stuff going together and it was really pretty cool. So when I talked to them about that I'd done that with some California sea lions and had the video to show it, they got really excited. And right at that moment, uh, a new surgeon arrived at the Yale University uh, Surgery Department, and he had been a former director at DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And the X-Files, they're the ones with the aliens in the base. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And he had run the Advanced Biological and Medical Projects Division. His name was uh, Colonel Rick Satava. And when he heard about that, he goes, you know, this sounds pretty cool because I'm here to, to, to work with recently declassified technology that I funded when I was running DARPA. And 
So I said, you know, we should go back to Mount Everest and try and test these new systems that you're developing to go up on the space station. And so we did. Um, these were things like a temperature pill that you could swallow that had a transmission radius of three meters. And then just all this other crazy stuff that was built into something that almost looked like a, a buoyancy compensator or, you know, like a harness that you'd go scuba diving with. Very lightweight, very high tech, you know, your oxygen saturation, your body temperature, your GPS position, all sorts of things. We could tell the climbers what kind of day they were having before they knew. Wow, that's fascinating. And that could be monitored from anywhere in the world through the satellite system. And that's exactly what we did. We made it so that we could see it down at base camp as they went up through uh, the Kumbu Icefall and from camps one, two, three, and four up to the summit. And we also were live transmitting it back to the Walter Reed uh, Military Hospital outside of Washington. Yeah, just amazing. And this is a part of the book where we very early on get a sense that perhaps you're slightly more sensitive to some things than the average person because you you make it clear that you, you figured out you could almost feel where the satellite signal was coming from. Think of it as kind of like dowsing. You know, I, I know that you've had dowsers in Australia because, you know, it's it's a lot of desert out there and water is very precious. Um, so it was a lot like dowsing and it's just something I realized I could do. In the first place I realized I could do it was when I was producing the Titanic expedition for discovery.com. I could just sense when I was having stronger satellite signal and weaker and, you know, I, I really can't explain it. It was just this feeling in my gut. So when I was up at Mount Everest, we we were staged, you know, when you go up to Mount Everest, you have to hike in to give your body a chance to acclimatize and build up more red blood cells. You can't just kind of helicopter into base camp, which is about 5,400, 5,500 meters, or you'll pass out in about six hours. So we were at this uh, Tibetan monastery. I mean, it's a Tibetan Buddhist monastery, even though it's in Nepal, it's uh, Tangboche. And while we were there a few days resting up, uh, there was this man from the Army Corps of Engineers, and he had a, a big satellite system with about a three-meter dish, I think. And I was watching him set his up, and I said, can I try something? And he said, what? And I said, I want one. I said, I would like to put the dish together, and then I want to steer it by gut feel to the satellite you're looking for. And this satellite is like 22,500 miles was that about 40,000 kilometers above the equator? Um, I, I said, I, I want you to turn it on looking for that particular satellite. And then as you use your spectrum analyzer to identify when the signal has been captured, you know, when you're locked on, um, if, if I don't tell you I'm, I think I'm on it, you can tell me if I've missed it. He said, okay, that sounds like fun. So I put it together and then I just kind of stood there and got really quiet, kind of centered in my gut. And I just started steering it you know, back and forth on its azimuth and up and down its elevation. And finally, I just stopped and I looked at him. I said, how am I doing? He goes, you're only one and a half degrees off of axis. Wow. A, a, degree, a degree is if you held your hand straight out, the width of one finger is one degree. Oh, my God. So that's how close I was. And, and what's the feeling like? Can you describe it? Do you get a tingling sensation, some kind of satellite spider sense? It's really hard to describe it. But if I had to say, it's almost like a, a full feeling. And it's not like, you know, full and hungry. It's just like more full, less full. It's kind of hard to, to say it. Better than that. You know, I don't know that we have the vocabulary to describe some of this. <laughs> Let's move on to 
why the Pentagon got interested in, in you. You said you got a call from the Pentagon one day. What, what were they trying to uh, figure out from your research? Well, this is great. So what happened was uh, in the late 90s, I started think I could see the dot-com bubble going to burst in about the next year or two. I just had this feeling about it. And so I uh, started reaching out to different news agencies saying, you know, this is kind of like taking a TV truck and shrinking it into a backpack. And this would allow us to, you know, go live with video from places that you can't do that now. And so um, I went down and showed it to CNN and they got very excited about it. And I'd say maybe a couple months later, they called me and asked if I could go to the Persian Gulf. And I said, sure. So I, I took my system. Long story short, I was flown out to an aircraft carrier, the USS Independence. I think this was like its last voyage before it was decommissioned, too. And on the stern, the back part of the ship, down near the uh, water level, is a place called a fantail. And the actual runway for the jets was above me. It was It's an interesting type of architecture. So what I did is um, I had you know shot some video around the ship. They were shooting cruise missiles at Iraq and flying missions, uh, you know, because they had a no-fly zone they were wanting to enforce and all that. So I, I got a bunch of this footage, and then I asked the captain of the ship. I said, "Could you hold a heading for me for a little while?" And he goes, "Sure." <laughs> so this allowed me to set up my satellite phones and lock on to a satellite, and without the ship turning left or right, stay locked on. During uh, for the duration of my transmission, so I didn't lose the connection. And wow. you know, you have about a degree and a half of um, latitude. So when when they hold a ship on a heading, I mean, it has to really be on it. But but it worked out. And what's really cool is he you know issued orders to the bridge to hold that heading, and then he came back because he was really interested in what I was doing. Remember, no one had really seen this before, and this was a real trial with CNN. And obviously, I didn't want to fail. But what I did do is I got a little cocky and I said, check this out. And what I did is I had um, I had a, a small computer that looked like a laptop on steroids. It was machined out of magnesium and aluminum. It actually came out of a <laughs> reconnaissance pod of an F-16 fighter. But it could come out wow. in flight at 50,000 feet covered in ice still running. So I said, that's what I need. And it had a back that opened up and in there were some different, uh, you know, electronic card slots you could put in. So I had put one in very high end video, uh, basically like a video conferencing board. And another one was a very high end um, communications board that was matched to the communications interface of this, of these particular satellite phones I was using. And what I did is I hacked the bonding code of the video conference system that would take a one single signal and allow me to divide it into four that were exactly equal to the satellite systems I was using. So in other words, I was able to not be limited to one satellite system, but I was actually able to use two, which doubled my right. bandwidth, which improved the video quality substantially. And eventually I did hack it and I was able to put four satellite systems on, but that was in the jungles of the Philippines with the special forces a few years later. <laughs> I know, right? I love I love this is the average day in the life of Jim Bruton. I've I'll now end up in the jungles of the Philippines. Steering a US aircraft carrier, hacking a board on my 
computer that came out of a casing from an F-16 and now I'm controlling all these satellites. It's incredible. I, I can only imagine what it sounds like. I know, right? Um, but anyway, he, um, I showed him what I could do and now I actually split my um, one video signal up into the two separate satellite signals and I sent one of the signals off to a satellite over the Atlantic Ocean and then down to a land earth station in America and then to CNN. The other half of this big signal I sent over to the Indian Ocean and then down to a land earth station in Malaysia, wrapping it around the Pacific to meet at CNN. And I was able to make those two halves of the signal meet within a second and a half of uh, tolerance to maintain the video feed. And when I did that, he must have really thought about how incredible that was because that's actually like built-in internet security. If you'd hacked either signal and only had half of it, you'd have garbage. You'd have to get the whole thing. So he, um, he must've, it was from him. He must've said something to the Pentagon and the Pentagon called me and said, Oh, you know, Admiral so-and-so saw what you were doing and just thought it was wonderful. And we'd love to hear more about what you're up to. And why don't you come down to Washington DC and have lunch with us? Well, of course, you know, I was on the next train down there ready to see what this was all about. And we sat there and had a great conversation. Uh, and it was with the Navy. Um, re really a friendly, really great conversation. And my dad was Navy. So I've always grown up, you know, respectful and, okay. and appreciative of our military. And, and this just reinforced that. And uh, when I talked to him about what I was doing, they said, you know, we'd like to offer you several things. We'd, we'd like to have, uh, you know, any of the news correspondents who want to transmit from uh our ships, we want to make, we want to have it where they go through you and we'd like for you to come back and we'll invite them all here and you can demonstrate your system to them. And basically you're doing it as, you know, our chosen one. And I said, that's pretty cool. And then he slid across the table to me, a telephone number and said, in the meantime, wherever you're going in the world, whatever you're doing, if you get into trouble, call this number Within 24 hours, we will extract you. <laughs> I love this. You have a free extraction card from the Pentagon. Have you ever been tempted to use it? Like if you had a, a, a bad night out and you, you <laughs> did a ride home, your car breaks down, you don't have any cell signal, you've been yeah. tempted to call the number? Is this an Uber? No, it's the Pentagon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, um, I, I never needed it, uh, you know, by... The grace of God, I never needed it, but but I, it did it did continue to grow into a very nice relationship that was with them, and um, you know more new, more uniquely, I guess mm. you could say, you know, like the Joint Special Operations Command, and um, yeah, incredible. I have a couple of pictures in my book that allude to that. And, and your relationship with the military, I guess, continued in a way when you went to Iraq, and you were also in Af Afghanistan, but. Your time in Iraq, you who were you embedded with? The, you mentioned the um, the first battalion, Fourth Marines, is where you ended up. Exactly. So, okay, so I came back from Afghanistan. Then I, I shot off to Southeast Asia for a few weeks. Right after that, to chase Abu Sayyaf terrorists in the jungles of the Philippines. And then I came back and took the rest of the year off. We knew we were going to go into Iraq. It was just when were we going? So I was again talking to all the news agencies to see what they were up to. Uh, finally re-embedded with, or I rejoined with uh, NBC News. And it's interesting. I um, I went over to Kuwait and we were based out of an air base there, uh, Ali al Salim Air Base. And I was embedded with the Marines, uh, a helicopter squadron. 
And um, that was at the very beginning. And I was in the helicopter, you know, on the night of the assault. And then a few days later, as things were kind of seeming to settle down, I talked to uh, General Joe Kelly and said, you know, I really need to go where I can get killed. I'm not doing any good here. So he said he put me on his helicopter, flew me right up to the tip of the spear, re-embedded me with uh, an infantry division. That was the 1st Battalion, 4th Marines. And uh, I stayed with them throughout the the rest of my time there. And they, they were just a great bunch of guys. I, I really, really enjoyed my time with them. There, there's so many incredible stories from this part of your life. Uh, but the one that really stood out to us was you uh, trying to rescue some nuns in Iraq. Yeah. You've got to tell us this one, Jim. This is a, a crazy story. Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great story. So invading Baghdad was a little strange for us. Uh, we, we crossed a river and then we, I'd say we invaded the, the landfill and then we invaded the sewage dump. And then we finally invaded, took over a, an abandoned cigarette factory. So, I mean, you know, nice healthy all around. <laughs> but anyway, but as we got set up there, I was talking to my fiance back here in the United States. And her aunt was a, a nun, a sister in uh, the order called uh, the Missionaries of Charity. And that was the order that Mother Teresa founded. And she said she'd been talking to her aunt and her aunt said, you know, we do have a mission there in Baghdad and no one's heard from them since you know, all the bombing and all that. And we're really concerned about them. So when my wife or my, I'm sorry, my, my wife, yet yeah, my fiance asked me, you know, if I could find out anything, I went to the colonel um, that I was with and I said, you know, here's the deal. This is what I need. He said, hold on a second. And he had Marine intelligence go and talk to the CIA who controlled a whole street in Baghdad at the time. In about an hour, they came back with what we call a grid. And that's like a, a latitude longitude point and said, Here, here's where your nuns are. So the colonel literally said, yeah, here's my M16. Here's my sidearm. Here are three of my best guys. There's an armored Humvee. Go to it. And so we were driving through Baghdad, totally unsecured yet. I don't even know if some of the people realized we'd invaded. Big machine gun on top of this thing. It was, it was insane. But no one got in our way and everybody moved. But we finally went down the right street. We found the mission. I started to get out and I had to take off all my body armor and helmet. And I said, I don't want to scare these women to death. And I went up and knocked on the door. And um, one of the nuns answered. And um, I think two of them were from Bangladesh and one was from um, proper India, if you will. And they were just so relaxed. Oh. It was so funny. I mean, it was almost like they were wearing Birkenstocks and were just kind of really <laughs> chill and really hip. And, and I said, no one's heard from you. I'm, I'm here to check on you and see if you're all right. And I said, yeah, we're fine. <laughs> like, what's your problem? And, and I said, well, you know, we were concerned. She said, come in. So I went inside and she took me around the corner inside and showed me this room that had, I swear, like 20 baby beds, baby cribs. And in there were all of these children. And the all of these children had either severe mental challenges or physical challenges. I mean, like, flippers instead of arms. I mean, we're talking serious stuff here that people in Baghdad would have these babies and say, we don't want this baby. And they go literally put it on the doorstep of this mission, knock on the door and run away. And obviously that's why they couldn't leave. Yeah. So the nuns had, you got it exactly. And so she said, where would we go? Where would we have escaped to? We couldn't leave all the children here and we couldn't take them all. So we just stayed. And so I looked at her and I said, you know, 
I'd like to do a news story on you about this. It was this was just before Easter on Good Friday. And at first, I guess maybe from their naturally being humble people, she said, no, you know, we don't really want the publicity. I said, this isn't about you. I said, this is about your mission. And this is an example people need to see. And they talked and they said, OK, we'll do it. So I did a, a really great story. And, you know, the Marines came in and they were holding the babies. They were almost fighting to hold these babies. It was just so cool to see this. And then I set up the satellite phone and I told all the sisters, I said, OK, call whoever's important to you and tell them you're OK. So um, they called out, told everybody they were fine and we went back and visited several more times and like the UN building had been bombed out. So the Marines went and raided it to bring them all kinds of stuff from food and curtains and fabric and light bulbs to all sorts of things. So I think we outfitted the, uh, uh, mission pretty well before we finally left. <laughs> oh, it was really amazing reading about your, your time in, in the war zone. Some incredible stories there. There's a ton more in the book, but we should move forward a bit to the, the period in your life. Uh, once all this, was kind of over once you, your life had settled down. I think you were you were back in the United States. You were working for a pharmaceutical company at the time, and and this is when your wife Dana suggested to you to build an airplane, <laughs> to to build an airplane you'd been fascinated with since your childhood. So which plane was this, and and why were you so fascinated with it? Yeah, again, you know, we were talking a little while ago about you know as a little boy being fascinated by wildlife films and science fiction. Uh, another fascination I'd had was early aviation. Um, you know, back when it was almost like the age of chivalry still lived in World War One and things like that. And during the pioneer age of aviation, every day was a day of discovery. So it was just something that really captured my imagination. So I had fallen in love with a couple of aircraft way back then. One was a 1917 Fokker triplane. That means three wings. It's just like what the Red Baron flew, except I didn't want to build a red one. I'd came up with my own color scheme of black and white stripes. The other one was a very whimsical looking airplane. It, it looked like it was more suited to being in a Disney cartoon. It was called a flying flea. It was a tiniest little fuselage and, you know, two wings and a BMW motorcycle engine right in front of your face with a propeller. It, it was, it looked actually, I could say very cute. Um, so the thing is my, my wife realized that, you know, having come from a life of, uh, you know, high adrenaline and a lot of testosterone. Yeah. And, excitement that working in the corporate world, you know, might, might take its toll. So in that, um, I'm, I was also a pilot for fun. She said, you know, now that you have this free time, why don't you build that airplane you're always talking about, you know, that you've thought about since childhood. And I looked at her and I said, you're right. So I did. It took me a while because I was very faithful to, um, reproducing it with all the fine, you know, small details, I did need to use a modern engine because I didn't have access to a World War One engine. Um, but but that's fine. And so I built it, uh, flew it, uh, and then eventually one day I sold it to an Air Force pilot. Oh wow! And once I did, yeah, and once I did that, I I said, well, now I'm going to build the second plane, the little reproduction of 1933 French Flying Flea by Henri Manier, he wanted to build uh, a small airplane that could be built on the dining room table of your Paris apartment and back in the 30s, and which is a really kind of cool concept. And it's almost like the, the birth of the microlight movement. Yeah. Um, so I said, well, this is the aircraft I'll build. And of course, you know, I, I got to know a lot of the people who uh, I'd say are very knowledgeable in that particular aircraft, including the grandson of the man who 
came up with the design back in the 30s. And I built it and uh, I first flew it on October 3rd, 2016, but I really didn't like the way it handled. So I said, okay, I'm, you know, a few days later, so I'm going to go back out and master its quirks. And that was on October 6th, 2016. Uh, I made one pass around the field. Everything was fine. It was on my way back around on what we call the downwind leg that I lost my engine. And because it was a, you know, an early design aircraft, it wasn't very clean aerodynamically. So when it lost power, it was coming down fast. It didn't glide. It just dropped, right? Pretty much. Yeah. And so I, um, I, Knew I wasn't going to make it back to my grass strip, uh, you know, my airfield. And it was very rocky, very hilly, and very forested all around me. So the only place that didn't have any of these obstacles was a small, very small lake at a nearby Boy Scout camp. So I just aimed for that because the the shape of the fuselage was set that it was almost like a boat. So I said, you know, I'll just put it down in the water near the shore and I'll be fine. Well, I overshot the bank by about 10 feet probably about, uh, you know, it's probably about six feet high, about two meters above the ground. And I crashed into all these big tree trunks at 70 miles an hour in the equivalent of um, what we call a soapbox derby car. Oh my gosh. When I stopped crashing, there was no plane left around me. It would literally turned into matchsticks. And um, I ruptured both lungs, broke all my ribs. Uh, my right leg was had multiple fractures. I had a hole in my lower back from a battery hitting me again at 70 miles an hour. My chin was torn up. And as I said in my book, and you noted, like other than that, I was fine. Yeah, <laughs> you just have this huge list of life-threatening injuries. And you're like, oh, other than that, yeah, everything's great. Everything's fine. But you were conscious, weren't you, Jim? Well, here's the funny thing. I, I was certainly... Um, I guess in shock after that. And there was, luckily there was a man fishing uh, that day and he was fishing there because it was closed and it was peaceful until I came down and he ran over and he called the emergency number and kept me propped up. And I asked him, I said, you know, was I conscious? Was I talking? Was, you know, what was my breathing like? He goes, you weren't really breathing. You were gasping. And it was this foam, bloody foam coming out of your mouth because your lungs were ruptured. And I said, wow. So if he he hadn't kept me propped up, I probably just would have died right there. My gosh. Um, The helicopter landed maybe 45, 30, 45 minutes later. And they were able to, um, you know, pull me out of the wreckage and flew me up to uh, our capital city, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, to the trauma center where they took excellent care of me. And uh, when my wife got up there a few hours later, she found me like in a breathing machine with all kinds of tubing going into me and coming out of me. And I was restrained because they didn't want me in my delirium to, you know, start grabbing tubes and pulling on them and things like that. So you had a really grueling week ahead of you in terms of the operations that were required, right? Like some of them were, was the chance of success were in the 2% range. I think I remember you writing. Yes. This is what she and my oldest daughter told me that um, they came out and said, you know, we have multiple six plus hour operations, all day long operations coming up and we could lose him at any time. And it was, you know, on these day by day determinations of what would be done next that they told my wife and daughter one that a couple of them had only a 2% chance of success. I don't know which specific operations, but that that they my daughter said we actually started the grieving process before 
all this because we just thought we were going to lose you. Wow. I said, well, I guess I was just too ornery to stay dead. I don't know. But there was a point where the doctor recommended to your wife to place you in a coma uh, and your wife agreed. Exactly. But now this is where this is where we find ourselves at the pivotal point in in your life where you're no longer in your hospital bed, Jim. You're 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 now somewhere else. Yeah, you think it's a wild ride up to now. Just just wait. Um so <laughs> yes, they they put me into a coma and again, in my best reckoning, when they put me into a coma here, I had a near-death experience. And as opposed to many where the the person who has the experience will say they went through a tunnel, they arrived in a beautiful place, you know, like heaven or a type of heaven. They may have seen uh, long-lost loved ones, you know, grandmother, grandfather that had passed away, something like that. Or they'll see angelic beings. They'll have a, a life review to see how they're doing. And then they'll get some big message and then come back. I didn't have any of that. I really didn't. It was more like for me just appearing somewhere else. Like I was teleported there and it was up on a terrace of a tall building in literally what looked like a post-apocalyptic city. Imagine New York or maybe imagine Sydney a thousand years after a nuclear blast or after the you know asteroid hits or something like that. It was absolutely dead. Wow. It was very gothic looking and very foreboding. Um, yeah, I mean, everything just looked gray and the sky was heavy and gray as well as if it you know, was getting ready to cut loose with the mother of all storms. And I remember just looking around. I, I wasn't afraid. I was just taking it in and accepting this is reality. And then all of a sudden this wave of nausea hit me and I kind of doubled over and I said, I don't think I can stand this. And when I said that, I heard this noise off to my left. And I looked over there and there was this tall 15 meter high uh, egg, like a sculpture that looked like an egg shape, but it was made out of lattice work, you know, like strips and bands of material with big open spaces between them. And it was inside there. I could see this light movement and that's where the sound was coming from. So I kind of, you know, again, bent over with pain. I walked over there and I looked through that lattice work. And inside were these, in freely suspended in space, were these um, what are called sector gears. When we think of a gear, we think of a full circle with the little teeth all the way around it. A sector gear is a partial arc of that gear. It, it's a, made like a quarter section, if you will. And it's designed to move back and forth. And you'll find them in clocks, for example. And I, I looked and, and some of them were very clear and definite and some of them were very ghost-like and transparent, but as they were sort of idling, they were gently moving and they would just pass through each other in a physically impossible manner here, but it looked natural there. And as I looked at them, they, some were more in focus. Some were very much out of focus. It was really strange. It was like I was doing a number on my eyes. And even though the degree to which they would be in focus as I looked at them was there, I could see what each one represented as a video feed playing in my head. It, and I realized this represents an experience in my future, um, you know, because I knew it hadn't happened yet, but I knew it was associated with me. So I, I put my hand through the um, latticework to see if I could touch these gears. And as I did so, one gear brushed by my hand and again, I immediately doubled over in even worse pain. And it was a reflex. That's really what it was, that I grabbed that gear and pulled it out through the lattice and threw it away. And when I did that, all of the gears inside 
kind of went crazy and were spinning around and then they settled down. And that's when I asked the question, what is this? And that is when I heard a disembodied voice that pretty much stayed with me throughout the rest of my experience. It said, this is the process of becoming. And I said, okay, what, what, where is this? What's going on? I said, you're in the in-between. I said, in-between what? I said, everything. You're standing inside the eternity of a single moment. That said something like, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense. And it said, the, basically it said the past is dust. You know, it said, try to remember where you just came from. You know, I've got one of the quotes. I've got one of the quotes here in front of me. After you removed the gear, the entity said to you, each gear is the probability of a thought, word or action in your future. Your destiny is resetting itself around what you have removed. Exactly. And exactly. And, and that's what all the spinning around was. And so the machine was re- basically this machine was my destiny. This egg represented my destiny and all the events of that destiny were contained within. And obviously what it's saying is that each one of those gears representing a decision point is full of probabilities of how you get to that decision point, of the kinds of decisions you could make, what would impact it, who would be impacted. All these things are woven into every single moment of decision. It would be hard to describe this if you didn't have a visual, I mean, as middling as it is, you know, to, to sort of reference. So, you know, I kept talking to it and I, I said, well, how did I know I could do that? Reach in here and, and remove that gear. And it said, why else are you here? And I said, I have no idea. Yeah. I said, I don't even know where these events occur or when. I said, that's not important. It's not important when or where. What's important is that you see how the beauty of things, how things fit and refit together. And I, I understood that. And, and I think that just convinces you that everything that's happening is supposed to happen is part of a pattern. And so you learn not to worry. It's such a fascinating visual representation of this idea of, I guess, like the egg is almost a quantum state of all these possibilities. And it's interesting, this this conversation goes back and forth in this section of the book of you and this this unseen entity. But there's a point where it's it's talking about choices and unintended consequences of choices and, and the pain each choice brings is your guide. And you you ask the entity, well, where are the gears that feel good? Like, I want to find the ones that feel good because you're in so much pain. And it essentially says you're not here to feel good. Here's how I look at it. Because a lot of people, again, when they talk about feeling unconditional love, I said, well, I didn't get the hugs. I did not get the unconditional <laughs> love. But look at it this way. In that I... I believe I was there for my own good. I believe I was there to remove events in my future that might be very unfortunate choices to make. So I'm sort of pre-removing obstacles from my path in the future that will allow me to be a better person. So I, I think as we look at it that way, it becomes clear that, again, that that everything is pretty much as it should be and unfolding as it should. And, and you just start pulling out gears. And you just start pulling out gears, exactly. And I even said one time, you know, I, I feel bad that my I don't have a real moral compass for doing this. I don't have any mantra or scripture or some religious idol to, you know, want to emulate. It's pain. And that's when it said, you know, that um, all, all choices have 
unintended consequences, some unfortunate and some not. And that's where pain is your guide. Because had I been able to see some of these choices, I might have been very tempted to try to leave them in my life. Like if I was going to win the lottery and be, you know, very wealthy, I, but become a real jerk for doing it. I could imagine me arguing with God saying, let's leave that in. I promise I won't be a jerk. But rather than just make it a discussion at all, why don't we just take into account the pain you're going to cause if this happens and let that decide for you whether you really want it, how badly you want it. And obviously, um, whatever my choices were that I wasn't really allowed to see and know, because, again, it wasn't important. What was important is that I use pain to clean it up now in sort of a virtual model before it became real and actually affected other people. And in this experience, in this uh, strange post-apocalyptic hellscape that you're in, uh, did you have uh, any kind of notion that there was your body still lying back in the hospital trying to survive? Did you still have a connection to your older life or were you just in this you know, singular moment of time, completely isolated from that reference. The second, absolutely what you said in the second part of that. I had no memory of this place whatsoever. If if a, if a voice had said to me, if you stay here any longer, you can't go back, I would have said, go back where? Well, to your family. What family? I had no notion, no memory, no association with the earth and life here. And honestly, in... As I really dug into it, I realized how depersonalized I was. Everything, everything, everything that made me Jim was stripped away from me. I was only aware of being a conscious being. I uh, wasn't pursuing or trying to avoid uh, joy or pain. I was just, I mean, other than trying to you know, reduce pain by making better choices, um, but it's not like I wanted to run away. It's not like I was terrified. I wasn't worried about getting rained on or anything like that. It was just, uh, I'm on a mission and I need to accomplish it. And what I wanted to say regarding, you know, the unconditional love is that, you know, when, when young men and women are preparing, um, you know, they go, they join the military, they're preparing to go to war. They, they go through a, like a boot camp, a drill, drill instructor camp or whatever. And, that's not a very loving environment. You don't get hugs. You don't get pampered. You really get, you know, almost beat up because the whole idea is to tear you down in order to build you up. And, you know, there are people who probably have wanted to kill the drill instructor or the, you know, the, <laughs> the guy running the place because he's putting them through hell. But when they go out into war, but and because of the training they received, they can make more informed and better choices and survive what's coming next there are a lot of people who would go back to that drill instructor and fall at their feet and say, thank you. We certainly got a sense that the entity uh, was also being slightly gentle with you because it actually made this clear. It said everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. Be gentle with everyone as I am gentle with you. And it was funny because you said in the book, well, it doesn't really feel gentle, this situation. <laughs> Nothing feels gentle about it. But then there was something that it said after this which I never quite understood. Maybe I missed it later on in the book, but it, it seemed like a reference to something. The entity said, you prayed for something for which is for which being here is the answer. And now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. But this, this praying for something for which being there is the answer, is that something you understood later? Did you know what the origin of that was? I think it's a characterization. I think 
many people, especially people who are spiritually inclined, who every now and then run up against the world and see it for what it is, and they long for something better, they long for people to be better, they long for a more evolved way of even dealing with the situation they find themselves in. I think there comes a point that we call the soul's midnight. And in that moment, in such despair, we might call out God's name for help. And with the sincerity and humility of that call, I believe that on that day, God turns around and calls your name. And on that day, you're going home one way or the other, no matter how many lifetimes your feet are now set to go home and circumstances in the world will align and almost conspire to get you there. And this to me was part of the answer of a similar cry I'm sure I've made in my life. So how did the experience conclude? You were pulling out gears guided by pain, trying to find uh, this, this path through all that, all those potentialities uh, was there a conclusion to it, or you know, how did you find yourself back in the hospital? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you alluded to it already with when it said, um, you know, and now the man who fell from the sky is not the same who flew into it. Uh, I would say the real parting words there was when it said, "Everything is interconnected, and pay more attention to your relationships." Because when I said, "I think I can live with this now," and that was its response, it's as if the view of where I was was started to either fade or like zoom out or something like that. It's really hard to say, but it was definitely me separating from it to return here. Now, when I returned here, and, and again, I'm, I'm estimating that this is when they took me out of the coma a week later, even though in the in-between it was a split second. I didn't have any memory of this place for at least another week. Please think about it. I'm coming out of intense anesthesia. I'm coming out of basically, you know, coma-making drugs, uh, physical shock, painkillers. I don't even remember being in the trauma center. I just remember waking up in what I would call the the rehabilitation hospital that I was transferred to uh, following my surgery. And that is interesting. As, as I was there, I was in kind of a good mood, but I guess, you know, when you're doped up, you you might be in a real good mood. I wasn't even aware of that much pain I was in, to be honest. And I, um, I definitely had this, it's as if it was a video feed. It was as if it were a, a, a video that was on replay of my experience in the in-between. It just kept going over and over and over in my head. I'm like, what is this? Wow. Where did this come from? What is it? I have no clue. And yet it had such gravity. It had such a pull. It had such a push. It had so much weight behind it. I'm like, I have no idea what this is all about, but it wouldn't like let me go. And with each iteration, there was more detail. There was more depth. There was more of an emotional connection to it. And I finally looked at my uh, morning nurse, who was really an incredible nurse. She was just really neat. She would just hang out in the room. We would talk about life and the universe and everything. And I said, listen, I have this weird thing going on in my head. Do you, do you mind if I just share with you? She goes, sure, go ahead. I think she was quite happy to spend some time there talking. So I really told her my story uh, as it has been printed in the book. And she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? And she said, I don't want you to die. And I said, you're a nurse in a hospital. You see death all the time. She said, yeah, but you're magical. And I said, what do you mean by that? 
She said, well, everybody here gets one doctor and they get 15 minutes of their time a day because medical personnel are very busy. For some reason, you have three to five doctors in here who stay for an hour, <laughs> hour and a half. I snoop. I walk by and I'm listening. What are you guys talking about? And you're talking about, you know, your work, your families, your hobbies. No one's talking about your medical records or your situation. She said, I've never seen anything like that. And that is so. So this leads to answering a question that's coming up, and that's, you know, when people have near-death experiences, as uh, PMH Atwater has said, if you weren't psychic before, you'll be psychic after. If you were psychic, you'll be more psychic. I wouldn't say whether I was psychic or not, but I would say the a aptitude or aspect of my personality that we would call empathy, the volume got totally turned up on that. I'm glad you brought that up because it's so true. You know, we've covered hundreds of these near-death experience stories over the years on our show, and we always hear this uh, recurring experience from people that they have uh, increased psychic changes in their life after the NDE. They also have physical changes as well. It was really telling, you, you described one of the first things you saw when you kind of came to in the hospital was they'd put up a photo of you uh, and I think it was, uh, you know, in the Middle East somewhere with two uh, tribal looking guys. And, you know, you looked like you had like a cravat on you in the desert, like a, a warrior. And you looked at this photo of yourself and felt no connection to this person, almost as if you were a comp completely different person. Uh, can you describe, you know, how that evolved over time? Did you, did you have any connection to your old self at all? No. And it's interesting because it literally was like one of the first things I saw coming out of my delirium. And my wife had put it there because to her, you know, this swashbuckling guy on the front lines of Afghanistan smoking Cuban cigars, you know, with 50 caliber machine gun belts all over everybody um, was a very, you know, like I said, very dashing looking. So to her, that was maybe the best version of myself, like your perfect match.com photo, right? And yeah. she, um, I guess she wanted me to see that as encouragement. Like, I want you to heal back to being this person. And I remember looking at that picture and I just felt no association to it whatsoever. And that, you might say, was my first real indication that things were different now. And of course, you know, everybody who walked in the room and saw the picture had to hear the story. So, uh, you know, that gave a lot of opportunities for conversation. But it was obviously a conversation I was getting very tired of having because it was pretty much all my story and it wasn't even a relevant story anymore. But it did get me thinking, you know, how to her and maybe even to me before the crash, this might have been what I would have thought was the best version of myself. And yet I said, now I'm starting to feel like the best version of myself was essentially on my knees in pain in a hellish landscape, getting the crap kicked out of me in order to become a better person. And you think about it. I mean, Joseph Campbell with The Hero's Journey. We love the heroes who are getting the crap kicked out of them, not the ones who are born with a silver spoon in their mouth, but the ones who fall down, get knocked down. And they just keep getting up. They won't take no for an answer because we identify with challenge. We identify with adversity. And so when when we are shown that someone can keep going and push through and carry on and succeed, these are the stories of heroes. And so 
that instinctively is why I saw the best version of myself as being in the in-between. Well, you mentioned the uh, some of the physical attributes that changed. Obviously, you had a long road to full physical recovery, but you did mention that your vision improved, to high sensitivity to smell, and that your taste lessened. I want to put those aside for a moment and come back to some of the uh, changes in your physical state and also changes in perhaps psychic states as well. But to, to get there, I, I want to first um, discuss how you tried to understand what had happened to you. I, I, I understand that you tried to, you know, read up as much as you could on near-death experiences. You started to research about quantum physics and try and find answers as to what had happened. And obviously, your experience is so atypical. It was very, very difficult. But you told an experience of uh, listening to an audiobook. You were driving the car one day and you had uh, PMH Atwater's 2011 book, uh, Near-Death Experiences, the rest of the story playing. Then there was a particular moment in Atwater's book where you said it was so poignant to your experience that you had to pull over the car and rewind the audiobook and listen again. So what was that particular part of Atwater's research that stood out to you? You know, it's one of the best parts of the story, to be honest. I, I swear. Um, I, so I would go out and drive twice a day for about an hour, an hour and a half, just, you know, the in-between or God and myself and, you know, just my quiet time to kind of soak it in. And I was listening to different audio books on near-death experiences. And I I was listening to PMHs, the one you just mentioned, and she said there's a particular condition that occurs for people who have car crashes or suffer from falls. Well, that perked my ears up because I was in a plane crash, and I said, well, let's see what she's got to say about that. And she said it creates a, what's called a colloidal condition, and I believe me, I studied physics, and I never heard of it, and I thought, what is that? Is that some, you know, woo-woo, airy-fairy term? No, it's an actual true state where um, something can be going in one direction, suddenly go in another, but it's basically um, a state in which you are between implosion and explosion, and she said that the state may pass the imprint of that state forever less, and with people who had that due to these circumstances, here are ways in which they are affected or and or like here's the kind of near death experience they have. And if you you know see in my book or on the website what the in-between looked like, this gothic, scary looking place, she said they go to a gray and colorless place. But at that point, I pull off the side of the road because, <laughs> because I remember I, I knew that my experience was one in a million within an already one in a million population. Yeah. And so I was desperately trying to find some familiar frame of reference to, you know, anchor me. And this was the first I had. So I listened very carefully. And then she started talking about, you know, what it looks like there and how, how it feels and all this. And then literally she started using the terms I learned when I was on the other side, she said the in-between and I looked it up in the book. And I think from that moment on, she used it 31 more times in the book. And she also, where I called it the impossible now, she called it the eternal now, same thing. And so I knew at that moment, not only would we be friends, we were already friends. So <laughs> I, I quickly reached out to her and set up a phone call. And, you know, you think about it, here's a, here's a woman who's a, top of the heat researcher 
in the world, 18 books. And, I, you know, a lot of people say, you know, what are their chances? Oh, I got right through to her and we spoke. And while we were talking, you're going to love this. Up here in Connecticut in the United States, it was in February of last year. Uh, you know, it's pretty cold. And I wanted to go out for my drive, you know, just like I had when I was listening to her book. And so I started my car to warm up ahead of time. And I came back in the house and we had our call. Well, in terms of uh, our time here at 4.40 p.m., while she and I are talking, I suddenly just felt my energy shift. I can't really explain it other than that right now you're aware of how much energy you just sort of feel like you have to get up and do things like, you know, do you feel energetic enough to go run a few miles or maybe? Just nope. <laughs> right. Exactly. But you know that. Well, I just felt my energy shift. The minute I felt that, she said, our energies are starting to merge. And I said, yeah, I can feel it. And she said, yeah, we just want to take that slowly. I said, fine. And that was, again, at 4.40 p.m. our time. Well, at that moment, we started talking about, you know, the eternal now, impossible now and its features and its experience and all that. We hung up the phone at uh, five o'clock. I walk outside to my car. As I look up at my porch light, it blows just immediately blue. And I said, well, that's par for the course. And then I got in my car. And here's the thing. I, I have a nice car. And it has two clocks, one built into the radio and one up on the dashboard. The one on the radio was perfectly normal time, as always. The one on the dashboard was frozen at 440. Oh, that's when you both experienced that. Yes, when we had that experience and we started talking about the uh, impossible now, it froze at that time. Only one other time afterwards, a few weeks later, when I was again driving and felt the in-between very close within me, it did it again. It has never, it never did it before and has never done it since. And and then there were a bunch of other electronic anomalies that have occurred as well. Well, yeah, I, I'm so glad you brought that up with that experience with uh, Atwater because this melding of energies that she mentioned and, you know, the light bulb blowing and the, the clock freezing, it seemed to extend into other parts of your life after the NDE. I mean, these strange occurrences would pop up whenever you would think about the in-between or you use the words whenever you were in touch with the in-between. So first of all, you know, what is this feeling of being in touch with the in-between? And can you share some of those other odd effects you noticed? Like <laughs> at one point you were blowing up microwaves. <laughs> I know, I'd love to. Anytime I, like right now, I, I'm surprised Siri hasn't gone off on my iPhone because when I start talking about the in-between, Siri wakes up and then she starts calling out her emergency number and it's like terrible how many times that's happened. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when I when I really get to talking about it, I can feel it. And as one time I said, the in-between isn't a place you go to or come from. It's simply a place you are. And I tend to look at life more from there looking here than from here looking there. It's as if the person I was on the other side, you know, that depersonalized but conscious being, it's as if I'm becoming that person more and more a little bit every day and becoming a little less who I was before the NDE. And that's fine. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Yeah. So some of the weird anomalies, um, you know, we, we have a, we have a nice home. We have, you know, central air and, uh, one day around this time, our entire, uh, HVAC, you know, your heating and air conditioning system, the whole thing blew up. The gas furnace blew up. The air conditioner outside blew up, had to get it replaced. And then things still weren't working right. And they had to come back and look and they finally figured out 
that in our duct work where you have these little things called damper motors and they direct the air in the ducts, you know, they upstairs, downstairs, that four out of five of them were blown up. And I said, why did that happen? And the guy just shrugged and said, power surge. And I said, you think? Um, one time I went with my son, we went driving around, just having a nice father-son drive and talk about life and stuff. And when we got back, um, my coffee and my go cup, my aluminum cup had gotten cold. So I put it in the microwave for 30 seconds, like all of us do, to heat it back up. And when I reached back in there, the minute my hand, now we're talking about the in-between because he's fascinated by it. The minute my hand touched the cup, the coffee exploded and the microwave totally went dead. And I had to replace that. And one of the strangest, most unusual things was around electronic communications. Uh, the first time I actually drove to PMH Atwater's house to visit with her, I was 20 minutes out from her house. I have my phone on the dash with uh, Waze, you know, a popular GPS program guiding me into her house. Said I was about 20 minutes away. And suddenly a friend, uh, an NDE friend, uh, was texting me through Facebook Messenger. And that popped up. And she said, I don't know why, but I'm thinking about you. And I said, you're thinking about me because I'm 20 minutes away from PMH's house. And she said, well, tell her I said hello. Now, if you're familiar with Facebook Messenger, when after you've typed a message and your, your friend is typing a message, while they are typing, you'll see this little dot, dot, dot across the bottom to indicate, you yeah. know, basically wait for that person to finish so you can respond properly. Well, while my friend is typing and I see the dot, dot, dot. Now, remember, I'm driving. Both hands are on the wheel. All of a sudden, my text field started to fill in with its own words. And it literally said, thank you for being a kind and loving person. I kid you not. I swear what? I have nothing to gain by telling this lie. I can only imagine what it sounds like to rational people. So your your phone basically typed that itself or something else typed that into your phone. Yeah. I mean, some someone made a joke that I guess your spirit guides know how to use your phone. I mean, it was the most, we <laughs> almost went off the road because I was so terrified that maybe somebody had hacked my phone and they were going to type something to this friend that I could never recover from. You know, something could be bad. Uh, because, hey, it came from my phone, so where else did it come from? And I, I uh, you know, almost went off the road, and then I told her what happened, and she laughed. And when I got to PMHs, I told her, and she just laughed and said, this is just the beginning. Yeah, it's something that we've seen consistent across the topics we cover on the show. There's these strange synchronicities that seem to be a form of communication from something else. It's, it's giving us a nod. And I guess the last thing I wanted to touch on uh, before we move on to some, some questions about how your spiritual life changed was... There seems to be something that occurs when two people that have had near-death experiences get together. And this can take the form of, you know, cash registers fouling up or electronics going down. And I thought you included a really great example of this when you attended a near-death experience conference. Uh, so so what occurred at this conference with all these NDEs getting together. Yeah. So, so I'm standing in line to check in to the registration and it's taking a long time. And this is for the IANS, the International Association of Near-Death Studies annual conference. It was in Pennsylvania. So everybody's showing up for this big conference and all the workshops on that. And we want to get checked in so we can you know, meet up with friends we haven't seen in a while. So as this line is getting longer and it's just taking forever, I finally found out the reason it was is because their credit card machines had gone down. And I looked and I kind of laughed. I said, you do know who you're checking in here, right? 
And the lady behind the counter said, no, why? I said, this is kind of like checking all the hackers in to a hotel for a hacker conference. <laughs> your elevators aren't going to work right. Your lights aren't going to work right. The thermostats <laughs> are going to go crazy. I said, this is a the association of near-death studies. I said, these people have all had near-death experiences, and these electronic anomalies are normal. And she looked at me and she said, you're giving me chills. And she actually came out from behind the counter and we went and stood in a corner. And I told her all about it. And she was all ears. Well, they so the credit card machines were working all that day. So they were having to do everything manually. And our key cards to our room for the entire three days we were there were just, I mean, I had to keep going. Everybody was going down to get new cards or they would stick their card in there 10 times. And on the 11th time it worked, it was just crazy. And we just had a big laugh about it because <laughs> we realized, yeah, there's really no fixing this. That's just something we got to deal with. It's funny that this happens. I feel like there needs to be some uh, understanding from at least the, the materialist side of what's going on with physics when these people get together. There's obviously something there that should be able to be measured. I agree. I agree with you. And I've wondered that. I've said, you know, so what? what, what is this bioelectric field, for want of a better word, that's going wacko? And I've definitely seen it amplify when, I mean, other than that one instance, I have a friend who's a screenwriter. She's had an NDE and a shared near-death experience when her father passed away. And just when we are talking on the phone or texting, stuff happens. Like one of us will be in a store and all the cash registers go down. And one time, uh, as we were texting, she said she'd been listening to music on her phone, driving over to her boyfriend's. And all of a sudden, the music started going crazy. You know, the, the wouldn't play white. She as we were talking, she walks in her boyfriend's house. His sound system immediately goes crazy. And it had been so frequent a thing. The boyfriend yelled out from the kitchen, tell Jim to stop it. Well, all of a sudden her son calls her who's visiting her apartment from college over the holidays. And he says, mom, the audio system here just went crazy. And it's even in the headphones. Oh, wow. It was just, and he, he, I just saw him last week and he's still kind of somewhere between laughing and scared about it. So, um, so the, these things do happen. They do amplify when more than one near-death experiencer, or, you know, they're together. And I have no idea, but like you, I believe there must be a way to measure this and, and to better understand it. I do. Well, let's move on to, I think, a bigger question. Uh, and I do appreciate you spending this much time with us for the interview. But uh, this, is, this is something really intriguing with your experience because I started to see that coming out of this NDE, it's like you started to shed attachments in almost a, a Buddhist way, uh, almost not as in a uh, conscious way of doing this. Not you know striving no, like to do this. Buddhism. It, it, it was all just coming naturally. Mm. That you were shedding these attachments, the sentimentality, and uh, you know things that ground uh, the most people in society. Was it? I, I want to ask: Was it difficult to stay grounded while this was happening? All this, these attachments being stripped away? You know, it was the opposite. Um, I think I had gone in so deeply and stayed so long and had the indelible impression of the place upon me of certainly of, of detachment born of being present and not having any memory of this place at all, that is actually more difficult to re-engage. I realized, you know, I could just sit there and stare at a wall for six hours and wouldn't think about it. I really didn't mind. I would just sit there and it was as if time hadn't passed. And then finally, my wife, you know, was concerned. And to be honest, after a year, she said, you know, maybe we need to go see 
a marriage counselor, and I readily agreed. Um, you know, I've written a lot about that in my book as well. And it is a challenge because, you know, an NDE does introduce an ambiguity into the relationship and there's no relationship that welcomes such an ambiguity. So well, you had such an eye-opening stat you included of people that had near-death experiences. The divorce rate was incredibly high, wasn't it? Yeah, it's like 50% higher than our 53% national average. It's like up to 78%. And to me, that's an epidemic. And but you can see why, you know, you have such a transformational experience that basically when people di- divorce because of it, it's because, you know, the, the person who didn't have the experience is saying, where did my spouse go? You know, I, I didn't necessarily sign on for this. I don't know who this person is. Their values are different. The way everything about them is different. They react differently to everything. Certainly a big part of that is the detachment. Uh, there's also a certain naivete. I mean, it's almost like becoming childlike in in it sounds kind of silly to say this, but um, some of that is expressed through uh, a less uh, uh, strict observation of social mores. And I mean, you you, you can be accused of being flirtatious without meaning to be flirtatious. It's just you might have a general sense of love for everybody and you want to help people. You want to give them attention if they want help, whatever. And you don't think about the fact that, you know, those who aren't as inclined or as evolved might see that as a misbehavior. And yet there's no misbehavior in your heart whatsoever. One common saying, and I'd say it's very true amongst many, if it'd be great to say it's all, but I don't know all. So I'll just say many in the ears. And that's that after a near-death experience, a man will see women as a mother, a sister, or a daughter, and women will see men as a father, a brother, or a son. And I'll be honest, it, it's it's true. It's been very true for me. It's very true for the people I'm close to in the NDE world. Well, the one thing I just wanted to mention quickly, and I put this in my notes because I, I was thinking about how to apply like a, almost like a broad situation to what, what you went through. Uh, I thought of the Chinese term Qing, and I like the Chinese terms because they often mean about 10 different English meanings in one word. But Qing can be translated to meaning love, uh, passion, feeling, emotion, affection, sentimentality, uh, having f- a, f- a favor of something, preferring one thing over another. And this this is a kind of an all-encompassing term for all those things. And if you think of what really binds human society together, often it's ching, it's, it's sentimentality, it's this emotion and passion that keeps families together, it ties everything together. And it seemed as though after your NDE, this ching just started to fade away. Like you, you didn't have that attachment to it anymore. Oh, that's great. I can jump right in on this one. Uh, at the last IANS conference I went to, uh, someone asked a really great question. They said, you know, in, in wanting to help people, which is a good thing, do you ever feel like there is a subtle, almost ego, false paternalism there? And I looked at her and I said, that is a great question. But right now, I don't know your name. I'm not here to get your money. I'm not here to get a job with you. I'm not here to date you. I don't want anything from you. And I had two psychologists come up later and said, you've just solved codependence. <laughs> I said, I guess so. I didn't want anything from her. Um, and then she came up and really wanted to have a conversation after that. And, and I put it this way, and maybe this helps a little bit. <clears throat> Think about it. If, if we do good in life, how often do we do good Truly, truly, truly coming from a place of selflessness. 
you know, I, I heard one time uh, some guru in India said, you know, if somebody even gives you a glass of water, they're expecting something in return, even if it's a thanks. And I would say now, definitely uh, when I do things, I want them to be helpful to people. Uh, you know, basically I want to do good, but it's you know, like I, I just want to help. But it's because the math says this is what you should do. It's not that I want to be commended. It's not that I want, you know, the executive parking spot. It's not that I want to win the award or be popular. I really could care less about any of that now. It's simply because to take it as objective as possible, because in the objectivity, you can understand the detachment. It's as if you've done the math equation for the situation and the math says this should be the answer. And the answer is one in which people have been helped, in which people are happy, in which people have not been taken advantage of, in which people feel empowered. And so you just work according to the math, to the answer that you know is supposed to be there simply because this is the proper answer to the math quiz. And then everybody else is standing around saying, well, maybe we can charge money for this or maybe we can get famous for this or whatever. I'm <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. what? <laughs> yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, It's a personal thing as well, though. I think you have to undergo your own transformative experience. You don't necessarily have to have a near-death experience to do that. But it's a, it's a personal insight thing. That, and this is why people meditate. This is why people have spiritual practices because it's not an easy thing. It takes a lot of effort. It takes trials and tribulations to actually get there. Well, it's almost like what... Uh, Jim is describing here is the the sentiment side of things, like the the love that we have for people. It also is part of what I was describing earlier. It's part of that that ching, that sentimentality. But mm. because this has faded away, what's replaced it is compassion, but in a much purer way. I think the the kind yes. of mathematics analogy there works in that way because it it doesn't have all the emotional strings attached to it. It's a much purer. Uh, Intention. Well, it's much calmer, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, Jim, you said you were going to, uh, <laughs> you had this uh, synchronicity story that you had to tell. I mean, we're all ears. That's great. Okay, so I had a, a cracked window at the house and in spring, I start getting all excited about, you know, getting the house spruced up for that, you know, coming out of a dark, cold winter. So I called a local glass company and they came out to repair the window and to also take a couple of window screens back to replace. Uh, the next day on a Friday, they called and said, your your screens are ready. And I thought, okay, great. So I went over there to pick them up around 4.30 in the afternoon. I walk inside and it's a husband and wife team and she's on the phone with my invoice. And so the, the husband and I were sitting there talking and uh, as is something that happens quite often, if you give me five minutes with people, I might find a way to weave my near-death experience into the story. You can imagine some of the looks I might get. But but I was talking, he seemed interested, and I noticed she'd gotten off the phone, and she's just really listening. And I said, you know, this gives them out. I said, I know this sounds crazy. And they go, no, no, we want to hear. Okay, fine. So I, I was telling them more about, you know, the crash and, and all that. And, um, and then the wife asked me a great question. She said, well, after this experience, did you – uh, find you were more intuitive? And I said, that's a great question. I said, but it's not really like that for me. I said, it's more, you know, reflecting on the fact, you know, pay more attention to relationships and everything's interconnected. I said, it's really more about relationships and a really amazing sense of timing. Uh, the timing of things is, is really fascinating. At that moment, now it's five o'clock on a Friday, their daughter walks in the door. And she looked at me and she said, 
I remember you. Now I look at the mother and the father and I look back at her and she said, I am an upper thoracic emergency nurse and I took care of you when you came in from a plane crash about three years ago. Oh my gosh. And I <laughs> That's said, amazing. And I look quite different then than I do right now. And she goes, yeah. And <laughs> That's incredible, the timing. And then I looked at the mother and I said, that's the answer to your question. <laughs> that's and great. And the other cool thing. I said, think about it. I said, if, if I had been able to answer your question like, oh, um, yeah, I have more intuition. In fact, I can tell you that in five minutes, your daughter is going to walk through that door. I said, I would have answered your question. I would have proven my point. But in a way, I would have owned that moment. But right now, think about it. You and I both know the chances of this having happened, especially on the heels of your question, was near to impossible. And the fact that it just happened seemingly on its own means no one can own this moment. It means we all own this moment and we all get to say, wow, this was amazing. And you could just see their gears and their heads were trying to yeah. turn and figure this out. They knew something of serious magnitude had happened and they couldn't figure out what it was. But it was just so cool. It was so cool. And that's the kind of thing that that's a norm now. There's so many moments like that in the book. And uh, there is some wonderful uh, kind of thoughts on what you've learned from your NDE uh, throughout the second half of it as well. I think it's it's really good that you're sharing uh, some of your insights with people. Uh, we hope everyone picks up the book. It's available now, Jim Bruton, with the In Between, A Trip of a Lifetime. Jim, we've got to thank you so much again for your time. It was fantastic to speak with you. We wish you the best with uh, the release of the book. And uh, thanks again. Well, Ben and Aaron, thank you so much, gracious hosts, and, and thank you to your listeners for taking the time to uh, listen to my story. And I, I hope, um, I mean, I hope people will read the book because I, I love it when people write to me with their questions and their insights and share their experiences. So I will look forward to the next time we talk and hopefully one of these days we can meet in person. Huge thanks again to Jim for appearing on the show. The In-Between, A Trip of a Lifetime is available now. We'll link to it in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. Just look for season 23, episode 19. You can also find Jim on his website at jimbruton.com. And if you check our show notes, I'll put links to his uh, Facebook page and his Twitter feed and his email if you want to reach out to him, especially if you've had uh, your own near-death experience or nobody's talking about yeah, with the in-between. And what an incredible life. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Just it's the stories of, you know, directing a US aircraft carrier and then hacking satellites and the like. Well, you know, I was thinking about it, though, because, I mean, being able to douse where a satellite signal is coming from, I mean, I'm thinking he already was inclined to have strange experiences. I'm not surprised that he had the most extreme of a near-death experience. Yeah, you're right. There are always was some kind of inkling of uh, abilities there with yeah, Jim. Yeah. And when we come back in our plus extension, I might uh, let you in on one that wasn't in the interview. We actually spoke about it in the interview, but I kind of 
I edited around it because I wanted to talk to you about it in plus because it kind ties of in. ties into what you've got coming up again, Aaron. And remind us what's coming up for our plus members. So we're going to be going into weird experiences that people have with phantom black dogs. And this isn't just simply just seeing a black dog hanging around somewhere. These are larger than life, almost comical black dogs that people encounter. But comical, I suppose, is the wrong word because it's comical in the fact that it's like it's too big. It shouldn't be yeah, here. shouldn't exist. But it's terrifying at the same time. And sometimes, you know, can have a positive effect, but for the most part, it seems to have some type of negative effect. Now, I found that the phantom black dog phenomenon ties in very nicely with the phantom big cat phenomenon, which then also ties in with Wendigos, shapeshifters, and some of the folklore of Native American legends. So all of that is going to come up in the plus extension. And who's the black ops doctor? I've been oh, I can't reveal. You. Oh. No, 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 that's going up in plus. So this is interesting as well because it basically describes this uh, program, this, uh, I guess, a secret space program that is allegedly being conducted mm. by the United States military. Is or there someone. any Nordic secretaries? There are no Nordic secretaries in Damn. this one, as far as I'm aware, but it does involve possibly uh, the military industrial complex. And this story that Ryan was told by a man that claims that he was responsible for retrieving the crashed craft and an interaction he had with the cleanup crew being oh, cool. men in black. That's all coming up on our Plus extension. Again, to get access, sign up at mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. You'll see all the details there. It's nine bucks a month to get access. You get these extra long extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. Sometimes the show is just double the length for our Plus members. You're also getting a higher bitrate feed. If you're on Plus, you get a better audio quality version of the show. You get a totally ad-free experience when you're on Plus. You get discounts off digital products in our store. Uh, a ton of great features for our Plus membership. Make sure you check it out. Again, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus help support your favorite show and definitely go and support jim by checking out his book again the in between a trip of a lifetime available now on paperback and on kindle we'll link to that as well that's a wrap for this free edition of the show thanks for listening if you're on plus stick around for the great stuff after the break for everyone else we'll catch you next week